Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. El condado de Santa Clara está pasando por una emergencia de sequía extrema. Valley Water le pide a la comunidad que limite el riego de jardines a un máximo de dos veces por semana. Trabajemos juntos y digámosle sí, ahorrar agua. Visite watersavings.org para más información. And that's the same stuff that they said to, um, you know, to Thomas Doerr, to Alice Paul, um, to, to, to Cage Lee and Jimmy Lee Jackson, to Martin Luther King. You're never going to be able to do this. You know, Dr. King, you're going to rip down a system of American apartheid. I'm sure there must have been moments when they thought they couldn't do it. And yet, because they were committed, people sacrificed, people persevered. Uh, they understood that they needed a movement and not a moment. They made it happen. And Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is the show dedicated to a simple premise, that everything is a brand today. Every person, every celebrity, every athlete, every company, every movement, every cause, every institution, everything is a brand today, a branded set of values. We do two things on the show. We do a big interview with a personality about their own personal brand, a big, well-known, important, influential person. Today, we've got Eric Holder, the former Attorney General of the United States, who's got a lot to talk about. Um, he's got a new book, and he was obviously so much in the news when it comes to uh, the law. So we're excited to have Eric Holder. And we do what we call our Brands of the Week, where we look at the zeitgeist, which brands are driving uh, the direction of the country, who's going up, who's going down. And let's get right to our Brands of the Week. So it's time for Brands of the Week. We'll do something a little, little different today. This is, uh, I'm going to do my Brands of the Week, but I just wanted to riff a little bit first on, on State of the Union, Brand Down for America. Um, we are in a really, really, really scary, sad, uh, dire place. Um, just, you know, in the backdrop of the last week, um, Roe v. Wade being overturned, which was unthinkable. Uh, all of a sudden, women losing controls of their bodies, uh, at least in half the country. Um, a 12-year-old girl, woman, girl, could be raped by her uncle and won't be able to get an abortion in, in 27 states or whatever the number is. Um, same time, in the past week, New York passed a uh, overturned a gun law that basically says you don't even need permission for self-defense to carry a concealed weapon. Pretty much anybody can walk around New York carrying a concealed weapon now, and we're going backwards with guns. I know we did pass a, uh, there's a, a gun law and legislation that the, the House has passed, but it needs to be so much more. Um, and we're watching these insurrection hearings um, that show clearly, clearly, without exception, that there was a failed coup. Um, led by Donald Trump and his cohorts, and we're, we're seeing one after another person come forward to draw, that Trump knew it was a lie, that this whole thing was a scheme, and that the scary part, and that people are not talking about enough as we watch these hearings, 
is it's set up for the next time to be successful. You know, more than half of Democrats and Republicans at this point don't think democracy is going to continue. They actually kind of say that. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's over. And yet people are not taking to the streets. This is scary stuff. We are, we are headed to a fascist regime here. This is, this is my adult life. I can never remember feeling that what we stand for um, is, going, is not great. You know, it's interesting. Trump was onto something when he was saying make America great again because we're not so great. You know, we talk about we're the best country in the world, and I, I know we are in so many ways, but you look at what's going on here and you go, what, what, are, what are we great at at this point? Uh, if we're taking away women's rights to production, if we can't keep our children safe in school from getting massacred with automatic mass weapons that anybody can buy in any store around the country, um, that we have a government that we can't trust that our elections are going to be free and fair going forward. So maybe we do need to make America great again, not in the way that Trump talked about it. Um, but it's, uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to do my kind of glib you know, brands of the week today. Uh, I'll do certain ones that have relevance to this that's just interesting. Brand down for Trump. Uh, I, what's happening with him is that what you're seeing in a lot of the polls is that the good news is he's starting to pay a price for what's going on in the hearings. That I, I think what so many Republicans are realizing, more than half, 60% of this country thinks that he should be tried criminally. 60%. And I think what's happening with Republicans, and unfortunately Trumpism is alive, but Trump, I think he's going to not be alive, not literally dead, but I don't think he's going to be the candidate. I don't think he, I, I think that you're seeing in, in some of the straw polls in, in New Hampshire, DeSantis beats him. And I think so many Republicans get a sense he's a losing proposition at this, at this point. And if you run Trump, you're running on the insurrection again. You're running on the big lie again. You're running on stuff that independents and, and moderate Republicans, suburban Republicans can't vote for. And I think the Republicans are starting to realize that. And I, I think that when you look at poll after poll, Trump is starting to weaken. And that's the good news. The bad news is that means we get Ron DeSantis, who in certain ways, and I've talked about this on the show, is uh, a scarier version of Trump because you can't just point to him and go look at this goofball. And he's not going to make the same dumb mistakes. Trump. He's a smart guy. Uh, but he's got fascist leanings also. And I don't know if he would support a fair and free election. Uh, I don't think he hasn't come right out and said the election was, was, was free and fair. He's just kind of dodged it. And, uh, the good news is people are watching the hearings. Uh, the ratings continue to go. Um, and the other only bright light in this for Democrats is that, uh, in a post row GOP, uh, new poll that says that Democrats are more than twice as likely to say as Republicans that the Supreme Court's decision will make them more likely to vote. So, you know, this decision is going to galvanize to some degree. The big million-dollar question, of course, is how much somebody going to see that their price of bread and their price of gas is up 7 and 8 and 10 and 12 and 14% versus these issues. And I hope these existential issues, the issues of freedom, the issues of democracy, that people can look past Okay, my loaf of bread is a little more expensive. And by the way, it's not all Biden's fault. It's not all... Trump spent this money, put this money in the system. Biden put this money in the system. We needed money in the system that causes inflation, not to the degree, and the Fed could have acted faster. And I think Biden, instead of putting $4 trillion in, could have put $2 trillion in. But this is not, a, obviously, a pure Democratic problem. I hope people understand that. But... Uh, Brand up to certain companies that are really kind of getting behind their employees and saying they're going to pay cover, they're going to pay travel costs 
for employees who are in states where the abortion laws are changing. I'm going to read the companies because they all deserve to get read out loud. And these are companies that are saying, look, if you work in one of our offices in a state that has changed these trigger abortion laws, we will pay for you to travel to another state. Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, PayPal, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Meta, Intuit, Amazon, Disney, Netflix, Comcast, NBC, Universal, Warner Brothers, Discovery, Paramount, Condé Nast, BuzzFeed, Vox Media. There's about another 10 or 15 more. Air now, Airbnb, uh, Zillow, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Yelp, Snap, Salesforce, Reddit, Bumble, OkCupid, Match Group, Box.com, Alaska Airlines, Tesla, Levi Strauss, Nike, Dick's Sporting Goods, Starbucks, Macy's, Kroger's, Starbucks, Patagonia, and Chobani. So all these companies... Uh, are stepping forward. And I think more than ever, and we've covered a lot of this on the show, we've talked about Disney, that companies are going to have to really start to take stands on social issues. I don't think consumers are going to let them take a pass. Brand, I'm going to give him a brand up only because he's not a moron, but Mehmet Oz, he's figured it out. They're dropping Trump from the branding in his general election shift. You know what? These guys in the primaries couldn't wait to stand next to Trump and go, I'm Trump, I'm Trump's best friend, I love Trump, Trump loves me, we're going we're gonna to cuddle together and spoon each other. And now in his campaign ads, you see nothing of Trump. So he's un- obviously understanding the Trump legacy starting to kind of uh, wander and, and uh, wane a bit. Uh, brand down for Gen Z. Talk about uh, over-entitled. Gen Z is overestimating the average starting salary by 50 grand. A recent survey by Clever Real Estate found that while the average starting salary for college graduates is 55000 college students expect to make 104000 at their first job. That's amazing. They, I want to say this again. The average, which is not surprising, makes fifty fifty five thousand to begin with. But the average college student thinks they should be making 104000 at their first job. What else do I need to say about Gen Z? So brand down for Gen Z expectations. Uh, another little hit about Aunt Gen Z, they literally say they would not work five days a week in an office. That's it. Just not working five days a week in an office. Brand down for job offers. More companies are starting to rescind their job offers. Businesses in several different industries are taking back job offers. The economy has gotten so slow that the booming job market is even starting to slow. So that's an interesting thing. Here's an interesting brand up for the 90 day rule. Bosses swear if you can keep, this is kind of, and this goes back to this kind of like momentary snap decision world, that if you can keep people for 90 days, hold on to an employee for three months, executive human resource specialists say the person is more likely to remain employed longer term. It's amazing. So you got to get them past that 90 days. That's where it comes to. Ah, these youngins today, I don't know. Um, brand down for Revlon, sad. Went bankrupt, Revlon, great brand name. Didn't, you know, couldn't compete in, in this new world. Uh, Revlon was an old client of mine. Uh, Ron Perlman is an old friend of mine. I'm sorry to hear this. Uh, but what's interesting, since they declared bankruptcy, their stock has gone from like a buck to eight bucks because it's become a meme stock. And they think they're going to be able to do things to it like they did to Hertz. So we'll see what, what happens with Revlon. But right now, currently a brand down. This is an interesting thing. A brand up for the Chipper Truck Cafe in Yonkers and Grubhub. Uh, a woman ordered a, bur- a burger on Grubhub and included a desperate plea for help. Um... The, the, the message was gargled, but she said she, she ordered uh, at a, 20, a, a Vita Alaria server at a 24-7 restaurant in New York. was used to reading customer special requests for, like, can you add ketchup? But she got this one. I'm going to read it verbatim. It's a little choppy, but you get it. Please call the police. He's going to call me when you delivered. Come with the cones. Please don't make it obvious. Read the message on the Grubhub's additional instructions. Uh, minutes later, they deciphered the message. They called the police. Uh, the police reported the address 
uh, and arrested uh, 32-year-old Kamoy Royal. He was charged with two counts of rape, two counts of strangulation, and unlawful imprisonment, among other felonies. So a quick-thinking person at the Chipper Truck Cafe. Brand up, I like this one, for what they're calling sleep divorces. Carson Daly said this. He said a sleep divorce is the best thing that ever happened during marriage. It's basically marriages that are happy. It doesn't mean that they're not having, you know, um, sexual relations anymore, but they're just sleeping in different beds because one person snores, because they're not comfortable in bed together. I have a very good friend that's doing that, has a great marriage, and they sleep in separate bedrooms, and it's just sometimes make it easy. It doesn't mean that they're not falling asleep together or they're not doing what people do in beds or sharing intimacy. But when it comes to sleep, people want their sleep. So, you know, God bless. I, I'm all for it. Brand up for Vinyl Records making a comeback. Manufacturers are trying to keep pace with a billion-dollar business now. Vinyl Records are billion dollars. People talk about that they like the actual experience better. There is something different. I, look, I grew up like everybody else did with Vinyl Records and taking the album out of the cover and putting the needle on and hearing it. Like, there was... There was, there was something participatory in it. You were involved with the music experience one more way. So I think that that's kind of an interesting thing uh, to see. Brand, I have to give this a brand up because I love it. Ketchup-flavored popsicles. There you go. Canadian ketchup brand has launched an unusual twist on popular song. Ketchup-flavored popsicles. The Frenchicle is a unique offering of French's ketchup. It's available select pop-up locations according to news relief from French's. And then on the other side, brand down from mustard. There's a mustard shortage. Supplies of mustard may be in danger this July 4th. Climate change has caused yields in the main mustard seed producing countries, and it's plummeting. How about that? A shortage on mustard. There you go. And finally, Kraft's Mac and Cheese. Brand up. They no longer call it macaroni and cheese. They are changing their name officially to Mac and Cheese. And the labeling says that now. It doesn't say macaroni and cheese. Imagine the thousands of hours of meetings they had to get to come up with that. Oh, I got one more. Because anything to do with bacon, I love. Brand up for bacon perfume. Bacon lovers can smell just like their favorite treat with this bacon-scented perfume. New bacon-scented fragrance from Tyson-owned Wright brand might be the scent for you. The scent name Wright and 100 Degrees. Wright and Degrees 100. I don't understand the name. It was released on Thursday. Celebrate the brand's 100th year. The bacon fiends can purchase the meaty fragrance. Just so I like that. How about you like a meaty fragrance? at $19.22 at Wright 100. Com. There you go. What else do I need to say? Those are our brands of the week. And let's get right to our interview. This is an important interview with Eric Holder, former Attorney General. Here it comes. That's right. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify, simply put, guys, if you've got anything to sell online, you need Shopify. It's a platform designed for anyone to sell anything anywhere, giving entrepreneurs resources once reserved for big business, customized for your needs, with a great-looking online store that brings your idea to life and tools to manage your day-to-day and drive sales. The possibilities are endless. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs, just like you and me, from first sale to full scale. And every 28 seconds, a small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. Get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. Gain knowledge and confidence with extensive resources to help you succeed, plus with 24-7 support. You're never alone. It's more than a store. Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie right now. Shopify.com slash Donnie. If you've got anything to sell, you want Shopify. Trust me on this. That's shopify.com slash Donnie. 
I am thrilled with today's guest. Uh, he is a former attorney general, the 82nd attorney general of the United States. He served uh, under Obama for six years. He's got a really important new book out that just came out. And what I love about this book as a branding guy is the title tells you everything, man. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need a blurb. You don't need an explanation. And the title is Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote, A History, A Crisis, A Plan. And if, there, if ever there was a book that was needed at a moment in time, it's this one. Mr. Attorney General, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here with you, Donnie. I'm a big uh, fan of yours. I, I follow you a lot. Uh, I see you on Morning Joe. Yeah, we're, all the time. we're, we're Morning Joe vets. Uh, I, I, last week, actually, I walked off set, and a, and a segment later, you walked on set, so we missed each other. But I'm a big fan right back at you. I appreciate you taking the time today. It's uh, so good to talk to you. First, sure. before we get to the book, just the, the news, obviously, the January 6th committee. I'm curious, a, 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 as a uh, former attorney general, and obviously Merrick Garland, his people are watching it, anything jump out to you? Uh, from your previous experience that you're looking at this going, hmm, that maybe the, the, the normal eyes are not seeing? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I think that, you know, the dimensions of something are, are starting to to kind of um, form up. Um, I, I started my career at the, I think, I think called the Public Integrity Section. We, we um, investigated and prosecuted official corruption cases. And after a while, um, in the course of an investigation, you have a sense of, you know, this is going to be something we're going to try. This is something we're likely to decline prosecution. And as I look at what I've heard from the January 6th committee leaks, and the good journalism, I, I think that, um, that, you know, a bunch of reporters have done, I get the feeling that this is something that's going to lead towards prosecutions. Um, High-level people in the White House, um, potentially people at the Justice Department, um, people outside of um, outside of government. What, what specifically, what lines have you seen? If you were going to say, ah, okay, because this person said this, this is enough for me, this would be evidential enough to do it. So are there any specific things that jump out, what we've seen so far, that go, this is this is Prosecution 101 coming? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the fact that there are a, there's a group of people, you know, agreeing that they're going to come up with ways in which they're going to delay uh, in order to come up with a result that's inconsistent with um, the way in which the Electoral College vote went, forget about what the popular vote said. Um, and, and this is separate and apart from what physically happened on the Capitol on January the 6th. I, I think this thing works at, at two levels. Uh, and, you know, the fact that you've got Eastman doing the kinds of things that he is alleged to have done. Um, you have the indications from people close to the former president saying you didn't win. And nevertheless, these things go on. I mean, all of these things are starting to, to form up um, in a way that leads me to believe that you're likely to see, um, you know, prosecutions. You, you've already said that you would have, based on the, the Fulton County investigation, what's going on, that you would have, you, there would be enough of it to indict Trump as far as you're concerned. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, that one, you know, I use a basketball term, that, that seems like a layup to me, um, yeah. you know, and that's separate and apart from everything that's happened in, in Washington, um, you know, trying to influence the outcome of the election there. And you've got that on tape. Yeah. yeah. You know, but I think the interesting thing about that Georgia matter is that can also be a specification for a larger conspiracy that might actually be um, cited in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, as long as you have a couple of people who agree uh, and they take an overt act, you can bring a whole bunch of people who agree to, um, to that conspiracy and bring in acts from, you know, a whole variety of, of places. So I think the Georgia... Um, 
request for finding votes has, has clearly a resonance in um, Georgia, but I think it can also be part of a, a federal conspiracy charge that might be cited in, in Washington, D.C. What would have to come out of these hearings would be a smoking gun that would take this all the way up to the president. You know, right, right now we've seen, you know, there, there's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the, he was very instrumental in causing all of this to happen. But what would, what would the smoking gun be? What would be the legal imperative? What, what, give me some for instances that would go, you know, well, this, then, then you indict Trump. Forget the politics involved. I'm speaking from a pure legal point of view. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, if there was some kind of contact between, um, you know, the former president and people who were involved in the planning of the in, the physical insurrection on, on January the 6th, um, if there were some indication that the former president was directing, you know, Mark Meadows to do a variety of things in connection with that other component that I think the Justice Department is looking at, and that is just with regard to the, the more legal or more legal sounding um, attempt at, um, you know, stopping the will of the voters from being uh, from being expressed. So th those kinds of things, you know, directions from the president to people who uh, we know are were involved in it, um, or, or some kind of connection, um, you know, to those people who were um, physically involved on the attack of the Capitol on, on January the 6th. Now, I'm not saying any of that stuff has happened yet, but those would certainly be, um, you know, smoking guns. Let's let's get to the book because there's so much in there and it's so powerful. Um, the the book you you lay out um, as far as the past is kind of four instances of voter surge where voters got the rights, whether it was poor whites, whether it was blacks, whether it was women, uh, and then you talk about kind of really the uh, Obama Trump presidencies how created a crisis, a new voter crisis out of that, and that's where we are right now. The book starts out very moving in terms of you watching the march on Selma. You were from Queens. Where in Queens are you from? I'm from Queens also. You were watching it as a, as a 13-year-old in Queens? East Elmhurst, right near LaGuardia Airport. Okay, I grew up in Bayside. There you go, right there. So you're watching that. Yeah, we're and it was vi uh, we are. It was very alien to you because you grew up in the North and blacks were voting. And, and, and think, what is this? I, do you take me through what was going through your mind at that time? Yeah, well, you know, 1963, the March on Washington, I'm 12 years old. Um, and, you know, I'm a, a pretty precocious kid. And so I'm watching what's going on at the March on Washington. Um, you know, before that was a very consequential year. Uh, Medgar Evers had been assassinated, you know, some months before. Um, on the, he actually had been assassinated the same day that my future sister-in-law integrated the University of Alabama with George Wallace with the school in the Stanhouse door. President Kennedy gives that great speech. Medgar Evers is assassinated. It all happens within the space of like, you know, 12 hours or so. Uh, who, who was your, your sister-in-law? Uh, Vivian Malone. She was one of the two black students who, as I said... She was one of the students um, you know, walking along. in. She yeah. was one of those students. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I, even as a 12-year-old, I was struck by her great beauty. I was lucky enough to end up marrying her younger sister, right. uh, you know, much, much later on. We, we lost Vivian, you know, way too soon. But seeing that on my, that black and white TV in Queens, Freedom Riders um, and the burned out buses, I mean, these are all things that left images in my mind. And it was kind of a confusing thing because in Queens, my dad insisted that, you know, I accompany him to the polls every time he voted. It was kind of a thing that we did in, in November. Um, and I would watch him vote, you know. And then I'm hearing all this stuff about black folks 
then called Negroes um, in the South who don't have the ability to, you know, use public facilities, don't have the ability to vote. And it just seems like I'm looking at a different country, you know, um, at the time. And then I realized, I realized since that time, uh, we used to spend a lot of time in Atlantic City, where my mother was from. And it, it struck me, I always thought of Atlantic City as just a black town. And I, I realized that later on, it was just that we were, we, Atlantic City was very segregated. And we only hung out on the black side of Atlantic City, as opposed to, uh, you know, the, the greater part of, uh, of, of Atlantic City. And so, I, I, you know, a lot of this stuff, again, I was a little unknowing in the ways of the world. Um, and it wasn't until I became, got older, that um, I understood what was going on. But it was kind of confusing as I watched it, as I sat on that, uh, that little black and white screen in, uh, in my basement in Queens. You, you had one of the most successful runs as attorney general, a uh, lot, a lot of benchmarks. The one that sticks with you, and I wonder if it was the inspiration, for lack of a better word, of the book, was Shelby, which obviously Shelby versus Holder and, and uh, kind of set us back uh, decades. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, was that, did the book start getting written at that point in your mind? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because that was, for me, kind of a watershed moment. Um, talk for those for those listeners that don't know about Shelby, just very quickly, just up to speed on on Shelby versus Holder. Sure, Shelby County versus Holder case is decided in 2013. Uh, the Chief Justice, writing for a 5-4 majority, says that, in his words, America has changed, and that the coverage formula that is contained in uh, the Act, and which allows for the Justice Department to intervene in those covered areas. Uh, if there are voting changes that people want to put in place, changing polling places, polling times, purging people, things of that nature, um, that once the Shelby County case goes into effect, um, the Justice Department doesn't have that pre-clearance ability. And as a result, states are free to do a whole variety of things that they were unable to do before. And almost immediately after the Shelby County case, you see a whole variety of states put into place those things that they could not have done before, from photo IDs to voter purges. Since Shelby County, 1,800 polling places have been closed around the country, predominantly in those places that had previously been covered by the act and disproportionately in communities of color. Uh, and so Shelby County was really um, a, a watershed moment. And it was, as I say in the book, it was, was what shaped or made my determination not to follow what is kind of a tradition for the attorney general to argue a case before the, um, the Supreme Court. They always pick the easiest case for the AG so the AG won't lose the case. Yeah. Um, but I decided that after Shelby County, I could not, uh, at least in my own mind, in, in good conscience, go and, and stand before that court um, and make it like it, it, was, it was business as usual because the decision by that 5-4 majority went against what Congress had reauthorized for 25 years, what President George W. Bush had signed, um, that reauthorization, um, the, ignored hundreds of pages of, of testimony, hundreds of exhibits, and the court substituted its own, I believe, ideological judgment and essentially gutted what is the crown jewel of the uh, Civil Rights Movement, that is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It's so stunning right now how just the freedoms that our predecessors fought for and killed for and, and we're going backwards on, whether it's, whether it's voting rights, whether it's Roe v. Wade, it's just, it's stunning and, and depressing. And I just, give me the top line on how, how we've gotten here. 
where the very thing that, that every group has fought for, the right to vote, and you, I mean, you, you talk about certain heroes in your book, we're going to get to that. How have we gotten to a place that we're going backwards? Yeah, you know, I, I think, Donnie, throughout our history, we have been dealing with this issue. Um, the status quo that has power, those people who are seeking their rightful place in society. And it's been different groups, you know, at different times. Um, but there's always been this push and pull, you know. Uh, the arc of progress has not been a consistent one. We, we zig and zag instead of, you know, going in, in, a, in a straight line. Uh, but what we're seeing now, I think, is really something that is unbelievably serious. Um, we have challenges to our democracy. I don't think I'm being an alarmist or hyperbolic to say that I think our democracy is under attack. You'll it's under. I, I don't January. think people are. I don't think people are screaming from the rafters enough. Uh, how 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 no. perilous we are right now. It is to say to even the fact that you even have to qualify. Say, I don't mean to be an alarmist. We need to be alarmist at this point. It is that desperate. Yeah. No, I would agree with you. I mean, you know, you look at what happened on January the sixth, which was a coup attempt. You look at uh, voter suppression that is occurring around the country. Unnecessary voter purges. Um, the attacks on the electoral infrastructure where you're seeing plans put in place to put, you know, conspiracy believers in charge of the counting of the votes, secretaries of state, or even lower than that, people at local, uh, at, the, at the local level. Um, we could lose our democracy. Now, that doesn't mean that you have a dictator, um, but you could end up with elections every two years, four years, six years that are essentially rendered meaningless. And that is something, you know, inconsistent with who we say we are and inconsistent with what, um, you know, so many people um, sacrificed for, bled for, you know, gave their lives for so that the people would ultimately decide, um, you know, the fate of this uh, of this nation. You, the book, the premise in the book is that we've gotten here as a result of the election of the first uh, African-American president and then followed by a would-be autocrat uh, who, who stoked the fire, the stoked the flames of, of, of the worst in us. Talk to me a little bit about how the seeds for this voter problem right now were the result of two presidents, two polar, bipolar presidents, frankly. Yeah, I think that to the status quo, the election of Barack Obama was a frightening thing. Even though people, we tend to forget how hopeful we all were in, in 2008, um, how it, it seemed that we had entered a, a new era. And yet to, to many people, this coalition that elected Barack Obama, and which reflects kind of the coming America, you know, um, a, a more multiracial nation, uh, a nation that's going to be younger, that's going to be more urban um, than, than rural, I suspect more ideologically left um, maybe than right, not, not to the extremes here, but, you know, a center-left country mm -hmm. as opposed to center-right. Mm -hmm. Um, that all of that was what was frightening to the status quo. And then determinations um, were made to make sure, as Mitch McConnell said, that this guy is only you know, a one-term president. And, and you saw kind of unprincipled opposition to um, President Obama. I, you know, I witnessed that um, you know, firsthand. It's one thing, you know, political disputes, and that's fine. You work through them. Um, but you saw really kind of simply unprincipled um, and, and obstinate opposition where there was not the ability to kind of, you know, work your way through things. Things had to be passed only by Democrats as opposed to Democrats with, you know, some Republicans. Mm -hmm. And then he's followed by uh, a person who is in some ways the manifestation, the, the capsulization of all of those, all of those concerns. And, you know, Donald Trump played to those fears, to those concerns. 
um, in, in a way that you know others have done. I, mean, I think about you know Father Coughlin. Other people in, in our history have, but no one was ever really run for president and been successful. Um, you know, play to our fears in the way that he did. Um, you know, when you say make America great again, in a lot of ways, what I heard from that were code. That was code for at a time when, you know, women were kind of in their place. Black folks were making a oh, lot yeah. of noise. People in the LGBT community were, you know, knew what, what their, their place was. Um, and so I, I, there was, you know, there was a rallying to that uh to, to that, that that fear that he was um, that he was putting out, you know, in a lot of ways, fear is more powerful, I think, you know, than hope. Um, and fear of change is something that people also fear. People and institutions, um, you know, like continuity. And so, um, you know, he he promised kind of a false continuity, and to in essence say that that what you've experienced over the course of these last eight years with. Uh, you know this this African American um, president. We're going to get back to, to to more to more normal to more normal things. I think you danced around. I always felt that make America great again was make America white again. I mean, it was that simple. Uh, and I think that there was a, a huge section of this population that's terrified that this country is heading to a white minority country that we're a product of globalization now, and it's very easy to create an other. Uh, when somebody's unhappy with their lot in life, you, throughout history, autocrats have created others, whether it's the Jews, whether it's the blacks, whether it's the Muslims, whether it's the media. And um, there, that was what Make America Great was about. In the book, you talk, it's, it's broken down to pieces. You, you talk about the violent past. Talk to me about some of the heroes at the various stages of, 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 uh, of voter progression, some of, the, some of the stories, some of those untold heroes that we've never heard about before that, that surface in the book. Yeah, well, the first group that I talk about in terms of fighting for voting rights to which they were, you know, inequitably denied was white men, <laughs> white men without property, um, who did not have the right to vote. And, uh, you know, the framers talked about whether or not there should be a property requirement. Um, is it appropriate to have a property requirement? Things were said in the Constitutional Convention that men without property could easily be bought. Men who didn't have property didn't have, clearly didn't have the mental capacity to be, you know, uh, to be uh, uh, astute voters. And so that first group was, you know, white men without property. They successfully um, got the right to vote for a, a number of reasons. And then you look at, at, at women, and a guy named Thomas Dorr um, in the 1840s in Rhode Island actually foments a rebellion um, so that white men without property would have the right to vote. Uh, you then fast forward to 1913, women are um, you know, struggling to get the, the right to vote. Um, we talked about a, a young woman named Al Alice, um, Alice Paul, who um, was, uh, beaten as she walked down um, Pennsylvania Avenue in 1913. I don't mean yelled at. I don't mean things thrown at her. They were beaten as they marched down um, Pennsylvania Avenue here in Washington, D.C., protesting for the right to vote. Then in 1917, she had been protesting in front of the White House. She and a bunch of others were arrested, taken to the D.C. jail. Uh, no uh, tubes put down their, their throats, and they were force-fed in what was called the Night of Terror which so um, enraged the nation and actually moved Woodrow Wilson to force him to come out and say that he was for um, women's suffrage. And then, you know, we talk about, you know, some of the more well-known people, John Lewis, um, you know, Dr. King, um, a guy named, you know, Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was killed because he saw um, his grandfather, Cager Lee, turned away from registering to vote um, in 1964. 
Jimmy Lee Jackson is then killed in Selma in 1965, and that leads to a protest against what the police had done to Jimmy Lee Jackson, which brings Dr. King to Selma to talk about police brutality, mistreatment of uh, Jimmy Lee Jackson, but it also gets enmeshed with a desire to express um, a desire for the right to vote. And so the Selma to Montgomery March is seen as a just a purely a, a voting rights uh, march, and it was predominantly that, but the, the spark for that was the the death of uh, of Jimmy Jimmy Lee Jackson, and I, we try to, I try to bring up the names of, of some of these people because I think they're very illustrative. You know, we know the great names, um, but we owe a great deal to those people whose names have been forgotten to us that history has forgotten, but who nevertheless um, are equally responsible for the progress that this nation uh, that this nation has made. Talk to my listeners about some the the, the current crisis about that that now Shelby does not protect us from. Um, some of the more egregious things that are happening around the country at various states uh, as far as voting rights go and, and how we are just not just going backwards, we are, we are spiraling backwards. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things is the, the closure of polling places, which was something that happened pretty quickly after the Shelby County case. As I said, almost 1,800 polling places have been closed disproportionately in those states previously covered by the act, and that means in, in the southern states, but it's also in other places um, around other places around the country. Which results in you know much longer lines if you are in a community of color than if you are um, in a in a in a in a in a white area. There was a study done in Atlanta in 2020 on election day uh, in Atlanta. If you voted after six o'clock and you were white, you waited on average about six minutes. Uh, if you were black in Atlanta, same election 2020, you waited on average 51 minutes. Um, which doesn't seem like, you know, I mean, that seems, that seems like an extra long time wait in uh, almost an hour. Uh, and then, but that was in Atlanta, and it was worse in other parts of Georgia. That disparity was greater in other parts of, of Georgia. Um, I worry about the problem that we have with partisan and racial gerrymandering, where, you know, um, elected officials, politicians, are choosing their voters as opposed to citizens choosing who their elected representatives ought to be. And that's a problem that I've been trying to uh, to, to focus on. Um, these the need for these unnecessary photo ID laws. Now, I'm in favor of voter identification. You should have to prove who you are, who you claim to be when you want to cast a ballot. But these very prescriptive um, photo ID laws have had a disproportionately negative effect on people of color. I'll give you an example. In Texas, if you have a state-issued uh, license to carry a concealed weapon, your photo on it, that's fine. You can use that um, to vote. On the other hand, if you have a state-issued photo ID from the University of Texas that says that you are, in fact, citizen of Texas and that you are a, you know, a student at the University of Texas, that is not sufficient for you incredible. to vote. And so they're making, a, they're making a distinction between, yeah. you know, make a difference between, between a student who they think they know is going to vote a certain way sure. as opposed to a, a, you know, a gun carrier who they think is going to vote in a, you know, in a, different, in a different way. It's pretty heinous stuff. Um, your plan, I love when we end up on a plan, you've got kind of four pillars to the plan. That basically, they're all kind of common sense thing. Take us, take us through right now the, the Attorney General holds our plan to kind of fix this problem or at least take a step in the right direction. Yeah, well, and what I say, I'll go through them very quickly, but what I say is this. The, the list that we're about to go through, people say, Eric, that's kind of long. You know, I mean, you're not going to be able to pull all that off. And that's the same stuff that they said to... Um, you know, to Thomas Doerr, to Alice Paul, um, to, to, to Cage Lee and Jimmy Lee Jackson, to Martin Luther King, you're never going to be able to do this. You know, Dr. King, you're going to rip down a system of American apartheid. I'm sure there must have been moments when they thought they couldn't do it. And yet 
because they were committed, people sacrificed, people persevered. Uh, they understood that they needed a movement and not a moment. They made it happen. And so with that in mind, the things that I'm about to say are indeed possible if an engaged American citizenry will fight for them. First, I mean, with regard to the House of Representatives, um, ban partisan gerrymandering. Um, you know, let's have the districts drawn in such a way that they're just fair contests. Let's make, a bat let's make this a battle of ideas of candidates and not of who has the ability to draw lines that are most favorable um, to them. With regard to the Senate, um, the most obvious thing is eliminate the filibuster. Um, there is no reason for that. Uh, if you look at in the book, we talk about how founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton in particular, was very set against this notion of supermajorities to pass legislation out of concern based on the experience they had with the Articles of Confederation that that would lead to gridlock as opposed to progress. <laughs> and uh, he was quite right uh, on that. I also think that to deal with the, um, the population imbalance that we have seen, that we now see compare the number of um, people a senator in California represents as opposed to a senator in Wyoming, that we admit the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico um, as states and to see how, you know, that might have an impact on that, that imbalance. With regard to the Supreme Court, I think I say we need to limit the terms of um, justices. I say 18 years. This is something where the Chief Justice and I actually agree. He says 15 years. And I say 18 years um, so that people don't serve for 30 and 40 years in, you know, unelected positions with enormous amounts of power. I mean, if you want to send your senator back to you know, Congress for 30 years at a time, or I That's do great. that, but yeah, they have yeah. to at least you know, get stand for sure. an election. Yeah. Right, but not that's not true of Supreme Court justices. Um, I also say that with regard to Supreme Court justices, we need to depressurize the confirmation and selection process. And so I would propose that we have a, a president select a Supreme Court justice in his or her first year and in his or her third year of their, of their administration. So every president would have uh, per term, uh, two selections to the Supreme Court. And if they served 18 years, o over time, that would get the court back down uh, to, to nine members. So that's what I say for the Supreme Court. With regard to the presidency, uh, we have to come up with a way in which we do away with, which is not likely because it would require a constitutional amendment, um, but somehow come work, have a workaround for the Electoral College. And uh, the proposal that I have there is this thing called the National Interstate Voter Compact that would allow the states to cast their electoral votes, not for who won the popular vote in their states, but who won the popular vote in the nation. And in that way, the Electoral College would reflect the popular vote so that we don't end up with presidents losing the popular vote, but gaining the presidency because they won the Electoral College, which was put in place by the founders out of concern that regular, ordinary people, you know, guys like me from Queens, would not have the mental capacity um, to make appropriate selections, and they wanted to have a college of, uh, you know, privileged people who would ultimately decide who would lead the nation. You, in one of your, I read in one of your interviews that you, you don't sleep as well at night lately, that, you, that you're, you're, you're more worried than you've ever been. What's going through, because I feel the same way, and I have kids, and, and uh, I worry. And what, when you get in bed at night, what are you worried about? You know, I worry about the state of our democracy. And I, you know, I, I want to be, the book is a hopeful one. I think it's, a, it's an easy read. I think it's a good read. And I think it's an optimistic one. Um, but I'm kind of laying out, in some ways, the best case scenario that the American people are going to somehow be grabbed by the lapels into, into action. 
but the fear I have is that, um, you know, we're not going to do that and that our democracy will be, if not lost, you know, un un unalterably um, weakened and we would end up with a nation that is not the America that um, we are capable of being, not the America that um, that we should be. And I worry, you know, what am I leaving to my kids in addition to, to climate, you know, and all the other things that are, are of great concern. Uh, I, I worry about our democratic system, which, you know, as I said earlier, is um, is under attack. And unless we defend it, unless we defend it, we could go the way of, um, you know, other advanced democracies in Europe in the 20th century where fascism rose. And again, not because fascism was strong, but because the defense of democracy was weak. And that's one of the things that, that, that really worries me. Are we going to be strong enough? Are we going to stand up? Um, enough in the way that others before us have done uh, to, to safeguard our democracy, to improve our democracy, and to make this nation, you know, um, more just. I hear you. You've been very generous with your time. A final question I ask this of all of our guests. You know, the whole premise of this podcast is that kind of everything today is a brand, every religion, every movement, every person, every celebrity, we're all brands. So what's that? What's the Eric Holder brand? Who? That's an interesting question. Uh, uh, it throws, uh, pretty much throws everybody. <laughs> Got a lot of smart people on this show, and most people react the same way. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Um, you know, I'd like to think that the Eric Holder brand is that um, I'm seen as a, a fighter for, for civil rights, um, a fighter for democracy, um, a, a fighter for, for for justice. I hope that would be you know my, my brand, a guy who's uh, maybe you know. A lot of queens, not afraid to voice an opinion, um, a little brash, um, but who uh, at the end of the day is, is reasoned and um, is focused on on justice, on um, on equality. I'd hope that's the, I hope that would be the. Brand. I think that's a good assessment of the brand as a branding guy, uh, Mr. Attorney General. The book is and it is a must read right now. And I just once again, I love this title because it lays it out. Our unfinished march: the violent past and imperiled future of the vote. A history a crisis, a plan. It is out now. Go get it. Run. Read it. You'll be better for it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Donnie. It's great talking to you. All right. You stay well. Stay healthy, okay? Thanks for listening to the show today. Uh, hope you enjoyed our Brands of the Week. Hope you enjoyed our interview with Eric Holder. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple, anyplace else. Rate, re review, or, and or subscribe. And also uh, watch our videos on YouTube. Please don't, don't forget to subscribe there and also leave your comments. Have a great week. We'll see you next week on our brand. El condado de Santa Clara está pasando por una emergencia de sequía extrema. Valley Water le pide a la comunidad que limite el riego de jardines a un máximo de dos veces por semana. Trabajemos juntos y digámosle sí, ahorrar agua. Visite watersavings.org para más información.